You're listening to Builder Funnel Radio. This is the Building a Family Business Show with Wes and Brooks Powell. Let's dive in. The Powell family construction business has been around for over 110 years. Over that time, it's evolved and been through four generations of the Powell family. What started as a new construction business building spec homes in the Seattle area evolved to building communities, remodeling, building custom homes, and then getting involved with property management. Today, the business currently owns and operates two retirement and assisted living facilities, several apartment buildings, and does third-party property management in the Seattle area with about 750 total doors under management. Over the last several decades, Wes and Brooks have seen it all when it comes to business evolution, family dynamics in the construction industry. This is the show where I work to extract their knowledge and experiences to help you navigate family dynamics, among other things, in your construction business. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, did you know that 72% of client unhappiness is directly attributed to a lack of communication during projects? The team over at BuildBook has solved that problem once and for all with a tool that keeps all the conversations and decisions between you, your team, and your clients in one place. Their simple, powerful app helps you create daily logs, schedule and manage your client tasks, keep track of selections, process change orders, and so much more. I met the BuildBook team in Vegas at IBS earlier this year, where they were chosen as a finalist for the most innovative construction tool of 2020, which is saying a lot considering how many tools are actually out there. If you're looking to remove the stress from your projects, make your clients happier, and increase your profits, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. There's absolutely no risk to try it. So go ahead and hit pause and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 to take advantage of the trial and score the 45% off. This deal isn't available anywhere else. So I recommend at least trying out the software. All right, let's dive into today's show. Hey guys, welcome back to Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. This week, we are going to pick up where we left off last week and we were diving into, well, we were trying to dive into a project and we really felt like we needed to uh, really talk about numbers for about an hour. So uh, Wes Brooks, welcome back. How's it going, guys? It's going great. Thanks, Wes. Good, good. And uh, well, before we continue, I think we do need to mention that Brooks, happy birthday, man. Thank you. Yeah. Happy birthday. We won't say which one it is. Yeah. It's like, I'll, uh, if I have to jump out for any any moment, it's probably just to uh, meet the delivery driver to receive all my gifts that I'm sure that you guys have sent. (laughs) Yep. They're they're on the way. Although I, I have been getting those like maybe delayed shipment notifications. So. If they don't show up for you know a few yeah. months, yeah, don't worry about it. Mostly, it's just okay. it's like canceled. Canceled, yeah. yeah. Canceled. Another <laughs> gift canceled. Yeah, canceled. <laughs> yeah, we tried once. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, done. <laughs> so today we wanted to actually dive into a example project. Last week we spent a lot of time going over pro forma and numbers and how to basically analyze. Hey, is is a deal? Is a project going to work out? And so. Brooks, why don't you give us just a, a little bit of an overview of this kind of case study, kind of what was the premise, what were you guys thinking when you went into it, and just kind of some of the basic components. 
Sure. So this project that we're using for today is a, um, a 22 unit townhome property. And it's actually a property that we've uh, been owned in the family for, you know, holy Toledo since 1960. So that's a long time, uh, 60 years. <laughs> and it's in a, an emerging market in the Seattle metro area. And so we thought, well, you know, we've got this land. Let's see what we could build on it. And we started from scratch, which is we didn't even know what we we're going to build on it. So, you know, that was the very first step. And so I already gave away the it's 22 units, but we didn't even know when we started. So that's that's where we started with just a piece of raw land. Piece of land. Yeah. So what? let's start there. You've got the land. You're saying, okay, this might be the right time to build something on here. How did you navigate that initial process of arriving at a 22, and you said townhome units, right? Yeah, yeah well, well, Wes, I mean, when Wes and I sat down and, you know, you start looking at a piece of dirt, the first thing you have to look at is entitlements, and entitlements have to do with zoning, and then you also look at, well, what's the land going to cost, and so there's a couple of things that you, and we talked last week about the back of the napkin, so Wes and I sat down first and said, okay, well, what do we think we can get on here? And the first step is you call your engineer or your architect or someone, you know, you call a friend who says, and, and first ask, hey, do you have an engineer or an architect? And then Wes and I sat down and started thinking about, okay, what could we build on there? So Wes, what, you can talk about those financial numbers that we started to put together after we got that first piece of information, which is, densities 20 somewhere between 22 to 35 units on this piece of property so a big range yeah big range and you know you kind of walk through and do that back to the napkin and and you you really do that range you you run those numbers at 35 and you run them at 22 and because you really don't know you're just trying to figure out is this worth spending any time on you know is is this now something that we should at least go to the next step and try to figure out, you know, put a little bit of effort and, and money into it to see if you're really uh, going to have something here that's viable. So that's really all you're doing. And um, so when we did the back of the napkin, we certainly didn't know if it was going to be 35 or 22 or something in between. It was just based on the, the zoning, what we thought we could get on there at the time before we'd done anything else. I think the thing to wrote, we want, we'll want to circle back to in the end because it became critical in this project is we started this undertaking on this piece of land with a kind of like, well, yeah, we, we think we want to do some development here and we think we want to build something here. And that's how we, we started it. So that's going to become important as we get a uh, sort of foreshadowing for you. Yeah. Uh, nice. get important yeah. later. You're really later. hooking yeah. the listeners here. For yeah, that's right. We have to have a little mystery, right? <laughs> yeah. A little mystery going on. Um, <laughs> well, before so, we get to the mystery, I'm curious how to, did you guys initially go, oh, should we build an apartment building or should we build townhomes or something else? Or I, I guess I'm wondering, did you guys look at the market and kind of what, how did you arrive at, at townhomes versus something else? Well, what we the way we did it and the way you really typically do it is, is what's the underlying zone that affects this piece of property? So if you're driving along and you see, gee, there's, you know, triplex, four duplex, duplex, vacant lot, triplex, duplex, fourplex. It's pretty easy to look up in the city code or the county code and say, oh, this is zone multifamily, 
four units or less, or it's multifamily, and they'll lay out what you can build there. And you, you know, the beauty of it now is you can just look that up, you know, on the internet and find out. Oh, okay, they'll hold multifamily, townhomes, apartments, uh, multi-story, up to six stories, and all that information is there. And so you can just start by looking at that and going, oh, well, what could I do? And you don't have to engage an architect. You don't have to engage an engineer. And the, re- and the reason I bring up both an architect and an engineer is you need both to figure out you know, what you can actually get on the property. So that's the way you start. So you, you just look and say, okay, well, what's around me? Looks like I can build the same thing. And, um, and that's why where we, Wes and I sat down and said, okay, well, it looks like we get as small as this to as big as this. And you know, ran those numbers on the back of the napkin. And obviously, you know, in this case, because the property had been in the family for 60 years, it's a lot easier to make that sort of a project work because your land basis is so low, you know, so those types of, you know, but it may be that when you're out driving around and looking at pieces of dirt and you're seeing stuff that is for sale, or maybe it's not for sale, but you're going to contact the owner and see if they're willing to do something, then those numbers become a lot more important because you don't have as much squish, I guess, in the project if, uh, if you haven't owned the property for a long time and, and there's been a lot of inflation. So one of the things you want to do in this kind of an iterative process is that a lot of these things are moving at the same time. So if you're a very sequential person, it's step one, step two, step three. This process can be a little bit or broad. It can be broader in that you can be looking on the internet and say, oh, what could I build here? You could be calling you know, a real estate agent that you know and say, hey, what are what's land trading at for multifamily? You could be calling your engineer and saying, any crazy stormwater requirements in this area. You kind of start collecting this information as you're ruminating about it, as you're driving around, working your, you know, your day. And then you start to pull it together into that, into that pro forma. Yeah. That's where that, that checklist is really handy because you've got, you know, basically you're going to answer, Hey, what do I need to know? That that's the question you're answering. What do I need to know? You know, Oh, you know, is there water? Is there sewer? Is there gas? Is there, you know, what, what's happening in the area. So there's just a ton of questions that, as Brooks was saying, you know, you can jump in and start checking those boxes and getting some of those things answered and closing down those unknowns. And the more of the unknowns that you close down, the closer you are to having the project. But until you get all those boxes checked, all those questions answered, you really don't have something to go with. And so as you guys got going, you were saying, okay, we like the townhome route. We think it's going to be 22 to 35 units and you're starting to run your numbers on the back of the napkin. Were you guys thinking originally going into it as these were going to be townhomes for rent or townhomes for sale? And how are you running the numbers that way? Yeah, I think we're strictly looking at for rental. That's the only reason this property was really still in the family and had been built on and sold was because the thought would be, hey, at some point, this would be a good investment piece of property for, for the family build some more apartments, something that we can rent and hold and see some appreciation in the asset. So, and that may not be true for everyone, but I mean, essentially we talked about in other podcasts, hey, you've got your engine that runs over here, either doing remodeling or building, that's what you use for selling stuff. And that's how you generate your cash. And then over on the other side, you've got, okay, I'm trying to build some assets for retention. And so this is really over on that other side, assets for retention. 
Yeah, and there's you know different theories. I mean, you we can talk about which is hey, you we could have built this and then sold the whole project, used that capital. You know, you could have levered up and taken the money we mm-hmm. we earned from building that, buying something bigger. You know, and then you could go from a 22 unit, sell it, and all of a sudden you're buying a 48 unit or something like that. Because in our market, there's so much construction liability through sales. We weren't interested in undertaking a sales process and stepping into that liability of selling off the assets and then you know using it in some other asset. Much better just to build on our own account and just you know build and hold. But I think we need to circle back to that first step, which is so critical, which if you just the first time you built a building or the first time you developed, is that a uh, designer can draw a building that'll you know, maximize the utility of the land. Most markets today have a lot of requirements for park space, play space, parking, and storm. And the thing that if you're in a market where they don't have a lot of storm requirements or maybe you're hearing about it, storm will eat your lunch for space. And that's where the engineer and the designer have to work together to do those preliminary meetings. So you very quickly get to a point where you need to have your a rough design based on storm, based on uh, loading, and you got to get in with the city and have a meeting with the city or the county and find out uh, what are they going to require. You know, that's usually two or three grand to have that meeting, plus you've spent six or seven or eight grand with your engineer and your designer. So, you, you know, you, after you run the back of the napkin, you're going to have to write a few checks to get there. To, to just determine even if you should spend any more money. So is that, oh, go ahead, Wes. Oh, I was just going to say that, that uh, you know, Brooks brings up an interesting point, and this is probably true for most markets, which is your zoning says, yep, I can divide that square footage or whatever it is by the requirement in the code and come up with X number of units. And that's really where we came up with the 35 units, you know, and uh, of course, at the end of the day, we we're at 22 units. So that kind of tells you the impact of all these other things that have come along. But each area is going to have their restrictions. So Brooks mentioned storm. Well, in the Seattle area, storm water, there's a lot of water. It's a big thing. So if you have to big build big vaults to hold water on the site and then disperse it out, that's going to be a huge cost. But somewhere else, it might be a restriction about water supply. You know, maybe there isn't enough water. Like on the Colorado area, there's, there's definitely water restrictions or things that could cause people to have trouble developing to the full maximum potential of the zoning. So every area is going to be unique that way. It could be fire. It could be, you know, but probably in your area, there's something that's going to cause you to not be able to maximize the full, the full zoning potential. So anyway, that can be a problem with a negotiation with a seller because they're going, Oh, well, Hey, my zoning says this. So I can absolutely, you know, get this much per unit. Well, not really. That's why. Well, we had a yeah, we had a deal we did uh, for a 15-unit townhome project uh, that we were we were buying the land and building it and keeping it. And uh, we've talked about it in a previous podcast, but it ended up being 10 units instead of 15. But I bought it based on 15. By the time I got to the city process, it was 10. So it was my mistake for not going all the way through the process of the city before I closed on the land. I thought, oh, I'm far enough along. And so, again, critical thing is don't closely have your permits because 
once you own the land, there's no going back. You know, it's, it's right. hard to back up. You know? <laughs> there's <laughs> so no do overs. <laughs> yeah, that, that backup bell you hear, that's the bus backing over you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, in this scenario, you basically went in back of the napkin 35 units, and then you started having the drawings done because you already had the land. And then as they get the drawings done, then you start working with the city or the county. And then that's where it started ratcheting back because you realized. Actually, we ratcheted it back beforehand. So you you, you self-ratchet because what happens is you'll, you do your design work, just very rough. I mean, it's, you start out with your architect just sketching something out based on the square footage, you know, the land use, you know, it's five units to the acre, 20 units to the acre, whatever it is. And then that you're taking to your engineer and saying, okay, here's what we think we can do uh, land use wise. Tell us what we can do, storm, retention, things like that. Your, your designer should bring to the table, here's how many units we can get on here. City or county code is you got to have a play space. You got to have so many parking units. They, they really take care of that. Then that designer works together with the engineer and they work out back and forth. Oh, okay. Typically we need X amount of parking spots. We need this much detention on site. We could put it in the road. We could put it, you know, over this open space in our market. Most of our detention has been in vaults in the last 20 years. Previous to that, it was an open uh, detention ponds. And so now it's actually going back to more bioswales, filtration ponds, things like that. You know, actually a vault's great because you can park on top of a vault. And we actually like vaults better. They're just super expensive. You know, a vault in our market could cost 200 grand. So it's just very crazy expensive. If you've followed Builder Funnel for even a little bit, you know we're huge believers in the inbound marketing methodology. One of the most important phases is the client delight phase. By delighting customers, you turn them into promoters of your business and your brand. The only way to get people to go out of their way to sing your praises is to wow them throughout the process. This is something the guys over at BuildBook are helping you do. Better communication leads to better outcomes. And that means communication at every level. Daily logs, client selections, punch lists, and change orders. Today, that communication gets super fragmented between email, text, and phone calls. And inevitably, things fall through the cracks. With BuildBook, everything funnels through one simple app, keeping everyone on the same page and your clients filled with delight. No more digging through texts or random emails looking for client approvals. Just one place to see everything going on with a project. And as a reminder, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. All right, let's get back to the show. So you got to be circling back constantly, trying to figure out with your loading study what things are going to work. You know, you might have started with... 30 units, 1,200 square feet, you figure out that we can only do 20 units and they have to be smaller or maybe larger. And that's really when you get involved with your, if you have your own property management company, you're talking to your leasing people. If you don't, you're talking to property managers in the area that are pretty active and you're finding out what are they thinking? What are they seeing? 
uh, what do they see in the future? Because there's a good chance you're not going to be bringing this product on for two years. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is you're trying to figure out what's going to be going on in the economy two to three years out and something that's going to be sustainable you know, over time. Yeah, I'd imagine that gets a little tricky when you think about trends and design and layout and stuff like that too. If you're forecasting a couple of years out, do you, do you find that it's better to take a more evergreen approach with some of those design elements? Well, I think one of the things you can do, and this is something uh, Wes can talk about a little bit. We, did, we had a project that was 50 years old and we went through and redeveloped it uh, this last year. And some neat things came out of that that we did you know, design-wise and, and finishes. So Wes, if you got some Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, sure. It was a pretty, pretty nice project. Turned out uh, pretty well. I mean, essentially, all we did was go back into the units and we looked at the outside of the building and said, "Hey, it has kind of that retro '60s vibe to it," and which, luckily for us, is is pretty popular right now, uh, mid-century modern and all that kind of stuff. So we just went through and retweaked the building, uh, new cabinets, lighting fixtures, paint, and just brought it all up. It looks super sharp and uh, we're able to pick up substantially more more rent by doing that. So you do have to think about your projects and think, well, this isn't going to be, whatever the design is, it's not going to be forever. So, you know, it's kind of a fine line. It just depends on how long you're going to hold the building for. Yeah, that makes sense. I know you guys have always taken a long-term approach with most of the projects. And so you you get into it knowing, hey, this will be a solid design for three, five, 10 years, whatever it is, but you know, eventually you'll probably have to make some of those adjustments down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Market's going to change and you'll end up having to do that. So in terms of this project that we've been walking through, let's go through kind of the the takeaways and some of the details and just kind of summarize what happened. So how much cash went into the deal? You know, did you eventually move through? Why, why did you end up stopping those kinds of things? What happened, you know, after going through all of these steps? In terms of cash, we had about fifty thousand dollars, I think, in cash into the project in you know, engineering, preliminary studies, things like that. You know, spoiler alert, so the project didn't go forward. But and Brooks can talk a little bit about why that was. But of course, you know, that's money that you when you go into a project, you know you're gonna see that project and you may or may not get that money back. And lots of times you don't, you know. So in this case, that money is still invested in the project. Uh, the longer it is till we develop that project, the less of a return we'll get on that that fifty grand because we might have to redo some of that work that we did at one point. You know, if you do a market study and then you don't do it for five years, well, you're going to update that market study, and you know, you're going to have to redo some of those things, or you might have to redo the loading study as things change in your municipality. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is the longer you hold, you own and hold a piece of property, the less property rights you have because as time moves on things change water rights change sewage changes traffic changes and it's a, is your county or city gets denser then the the governing bodies will take away property rights and, and most likely decrease your zoning uh, versus increase it every once in a while you can get up zoned but that doesn't happen you know very often so it is if you're looking at buying something, you know, look at trying to move through that relatively quickly so that you you capture the the property rights. So if you bought something that's going to be a 
five unit, you, know, you want to move on through it so it doesn't end up being a 20 unit or something just due to city changes. So as we moved through this project, the project actually probably worked fine. It took us about 18 months to get from what do we want to build on it to what we could build on it and have some design ideas. And so we had invested about $50,000 and spent 18 months to move through that. And the reason, it just takes that long in our in our jurisdiction to get to the point where you could actually draw something and go in for a permit. And our permit process in this county was actually a two-year process. So we would have had 18 months into the prelims, decided to go, and then probably another two years to actually get a permit. So we did our preliminary numbers and ran through potentially, you know, construction costs and what returns might be. And what ended up happening is, is that the investors who were interested in moving on the project were really not as gung-ho as we thought that they were. And so we didn't have the funding to move forward. So it, it goes to, you know, knowing if, if you're not controlling the money, um, then you have to make sure that you have buy-in from your investors all the way through as you move forward. And if that's something that's difficult to do, do projects that you can just control the money on and you don't have to go back to investors. I don't know, Wes, others. Well, I think you, you, certainly, yeah, you need to be able to control the money or be able to go to get alternate sources of funding, but you also need to control the dirt. So, and that, I think really that uh, ultimately is what turned this project upside down is that um, as minority owners on the dirt, we didn't have the ultimate say on whether we should move forward on that project or not. Because we could have found alternate funding sources, I think for sure. But if you don't control the dirt, you don't control the project. So, and uh, that's just a hard lesson. And that would go back, that would go back to also, in this case, this was a piece of dirt that had been in the portfolio a long time. But if you're just getting started and you're like, oh, I want to try to find a piece of dirt to build on, then tie up the, that dirt with a, a contract, a purchase and sale contract that has lots of feasibility time, lots of um, time to close so you can do your work and you think it's going to take two years before you're ready to close, you write the deal that way and then move forward with giving yourself some outs along the way. I think that's the, and then you do control the dirt and then you could work on the investor side. I don't know, Wes, what you. Well, I think on the, yeah, I agree with all of that, but I think on the, the flip side, you know, Brooks, you talked about earlier about the project that you had done where you were down zoned or, or certainly the city got in there and they reduced the number of units for you and you decided to close and move forward with the project anyway. And if, you know, in that example, you were kind of going, well, man, that's, that wasn't maybe the best idea to close before you had everything absolutely lined up. But on the other hand, I think if you are writing a deal or um, do make sure that you can waive any of those things that you personally put into that deal and say, okay, I'm waiving all of these requirements and I'm gonna close. Because you do want to have that option. So you, you really do want it both ways. You want to have the time and you want to have the outs, but you also want to have the ability to waive all of those outs and go ahead and close. Because there may be a, a particular situation where you actually do want to want to do that. Yeah, that's a good point, Wes. The, um, you always want to be able to waive all your conditions and, uh, and move towards closing whenever you're ready to do that. You might decide that you know, something could really change 
and all of a sudden this property got way more valuable than you had anticipated. And all of a sudden the seller's like, whoa, I want to get out of this deal because I could resell it for more money. And that doesn't happen all the time, but we've did processes where projects where you're dealing with an estate and or you're dealing with a, a landowner who passes on during the feasibility and then, and then the estate doesn't want to close, but we do want to close. And so you do want to have that ability to close um, if you want to. So it's like Wes said, you're trying to, you're trying to have both sets of conditions set up. So it works for you the best. And in a super hot market, that's hard to do when people are paying cash for land. And, but, you know, hopefully everybody's market's a little more balanced and they can write a balanced, Yeah, I think those are good takeaways. It seems like, you know, you you start, we started with the back of the napkin, you start going through all these numbers, and you're just penciling out, but then you kind of hit this tipping point where if you're going to start dropping in some money and making some moves, you want to have these things in place, knowing that you have the control or you have multiple options to get funding or, you know, some of these things that you guys just went through, because there's lots of ways the deal can, can implode, you know, if you haven't thought through some of those, even if they're rarer or there's a small chance, but if there's 10 things like that, that have a small chance, then you're bound to, you know, bump into one of those. So it sounds like that's the main takeaway here was, you know, you guys had had almost everything ironed out, but then there were a couple of things that, um, you know, just caused it to put it on hold and, you know, discontinue. So are you guys, looking at this piece of land, you know, for the the future, or was it kind of like, Hey, we kind of explored that. And and now it's on the back burner for a while again. Well, it's still in the portfolio. So it certainly can always be in play. And so never say never. So I would imagine at some point this land will, will either get sold or get, get developed may not be developed by Brooks or myself. Um, hey Spence, maybe you can develop it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This sounds like a really lengthy process. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, not, it's not for the faint. It's not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. So I think that's the the takeaway is if someone's getting started, they're thinking about time frame, timeline, amount of cash they have available, investors, and thinking about those things and yeah, how much time in terms of, you know, in, on the calendar, but almost have how much time they have to spend on it when they're doing other things in their other, in their business. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, well, let's, uh, let's wrap up this case study here, you know, just with some final thoughts, Wes, you know, as you reflect back on this, how would you, you know, either summarize it or just a, a quick parting thought on, on this one? Sure. Uh, well, you know, they say a learning experience is anything that costs you money. So, you know, we chalk this one down to a learning experience. And we did learn a lot. And so I think, you know, as you're looking at projects, just make sure that you think about what are some of the unexpected things that could happen. And don't, in your enthusiasm for a project, don't forget some of the fundamentals. Do I have my ownership structure in place? Do I have my funding in place? You know, those different types of things. And then also, how far am I willing to go and how much money am I willing to invest and still... Uh, recognize that I can walk away from that and I'm going to pull the plug. So you got to know what that number is in your head. Otherwise you can go in a little bit deeper than you might want to get into it. And that can cause you problems for your next project. So uh, those are some of my takeaways, I guess. How about you, Brooks? My takeaways would be um, as you're sitting down to think about projects, think about, uh, have conversations with whomever else you're partnering with, uh, whether that's your 
significant other, uh, its business partners, and sit down and run through some scenarios, you know, over lunch, which is, hey, if we were out to go out and look for something, how much are people willing to invest? Um, and, and how much, how early, how much are you willing to walk away from? And, and try to run those out. And because you've done the back of the napkin, you know, hey, we might have to take, bring in 500 grand in cash to this deal. Well, then find out from everybody who's participating, you know, are, at what point are they willing to do that? Are they willing to do that? And kind of flush that out ahead of time. Once you've figured out your financing structure and how much cash you have to work on, work with, then you're able to go and look for projects. Otherwise, you look for things you can't afford. So it's better to look for stuff you can afford. If you've got 10 grand, what can you do with 10? If you've got 20, what can you do with 20? If you've got 10 and you've got a, a friendly person who'd like to loan you 100, okay, what? So those are the things you have to, and you have to really find out what people will really do, not just what they're going to talk about over a beer or something. Oh, yeah, I'd give you 10 grand. Say, like, okay. Well, then you take it to the next level and get people to really sit down in a business setting and commit and say, okay, if I put this together, are you in? And then you get something a little roughed up and then you have people write their checks early and that tends to keep people more committed. So that's probably a big takeaway there. Cool. Yeah. Well, well, good takeaways. And thank you guys for walking through this case study. I'm hoping that uh, for those of you listening, that this helped out in terms of, you know, kind of that start to at least completion or figuring out, Hey, this isn't going to work out for one reason or another. So yeah, appreciate you guys listen and please go ahead and leave us a review if you haven't already and definitely send us some feedback over at radio at builderfunnel.com. Send us a note, send us a question if there's something you guys want us to dive into in future episodes. And with that, we'll see you guys next week on Builder Funnel Radio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Building a Family Business where we went through a case study of a real project and obviously that project did not go through, but there were some good takeaways and some good lessons. And before we wrap for today, just wanted to give a big shout out and a big thank you to everyone that's been listening and sending in your feedback and your comments. It's been really fun to see those and we really appreciate it. So don't hesitate to send us a note. Uh, you can always shoot a note over to radio at builderfunnel.com. You can find uh, Brooks, Wes, or I on LinkedIn or Instagram and uh, send us a message. Let us know what you think of the show. Say hello. And if you do want us to dive into a specific topic or you have a question for any of us, Brooks or Wes specifically, definitely let us know because we'd love to tackle those questions on future episodes. So thanks again for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time on Builder Funnel Radio.